0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Greatest Love Stories. Today, a classic. The Wreck, from Guy de Maupassant. Have you ever felt a powerful attachment to a total stranger? Some people might call it an unrequited love. That's what happens to the subject of this story. We'll let the story tell itself. The Wreck, by Guy de Maupassant. "'It was yesterday, the 31st of December. "'I had just finished breakfast "'with my old friend Georges Guerin "'when the servant handed him a letter "'covered with seals and foreign stamps. "'Georges said, "'Will you excuse me?' "'Certainly.' "'And so he began to read the letter, "'which was written in a large English handwriting, "'crossed and recrossed in every direction. "'He read them slowly, "'with serious attention,' AND THE INTEREST WHICH WE ONLY PAY TO THINGS WHICH TOUCH OUR HEARTS. THEN HE PUT THE LETTER ON THE MANTELPIECE, AND SAID, THAT WAS A CURIOUS STORY. I'VE NEVER TOLD YOU ABOUT IT, I THINK. YET IT WAS A SENTIMENTAL ADVENTURE, AND IT REALLY HAPPENED TO ME. THAT WAS A STRANGE NEW YEAR'S DAY, INDEED. IT MUST HAVE BEEN TWENTY YEARS AGO, FOR I WAS THEN THIRTY, AND I'M NOW FIFTY YEARS OLD. I was then an inspector in the Maritime Insurance Company, of which I am now director. I had arranged to pass New Year's Day in Paris, since it is customary to make that day a fete. When I received a letter from the manager asking me to proceed at once to the island of Ray, where a three-masted vessel from Saint-Nazaire, insured by us, had just been driven ashore. It was then eight o'clock in the morning. I arrived at the office at 10 to get my advices, and that evening I took the express, which won't be down in La Rochelle the next day, the 31st of December. I had two hours to wait before going aboard the boat for Ray, so I made a tour of the town. It is certainly a queer city, La Rochelle, with strong characteristics of its own streets, tangled like a labyrinth, sidewalks running under endless arcaded galleries like those of the Rue de Rivoli, but low, mysterious, built as if to form a suitable setting for conspirators and making a striking background for those old-time wars, the savage, heroic wars of religion. It is indeed the typical old Huguenot city, conservative, discreet, with no fine art to show, with no wonderful monuments, such as make Rouen. But it is remarkable for its severe, somewhat sullen look. It is a city of obstinate fighters, a city where fanaticism might well blossom, where the faith of the Calvinists became enthusiastic, and which gave birth to the plot of the Four Sergeants. After I had wandered for some time about these curious streets, I went aboard the black, rotund little steamboat which was to take me to the island of Ray. It was called the Jean Guiton. It started with angry puffings, passed between the two old towers which guard the harbor there, crossed the roadstead, and issued from the mole built by Richelieu, the great stories of which can be seen at the water's edge, enclosing the town like a great necklace. Then the steamboat turned to the right. It was one of those sad days which give one the blues, tighten the heart, and take away all strength and energy and force. A gray, cold day, with a heavy mist which was wet as rain, as cold as frost, as bad to breathe as the steam of a wash tub. Under this low sky of dismal fog, the shallow, yellow, sandy sea of all practically level beaches lay without a wrinkle, without a movement, without life. A sea of turbid water, of greasy water, of stagnant water. Jean Greton passed over it, rolling a little from habit, dividing the smooth, dark blue water, and leaving behind a few waves, a little splashing, a slight swell, which soon calmed down. I began to talk to the captain, a little man with small feet, as round as his boat, and rolling in the same manner. I wanted some details of the disaster on which I was to draw up a report. A great square-rigged three-master, the Marie Joseph of Saint-Nazaire, had gone ashore one night in a hurricane on the sands of the island Ray. The owner wrote us that the storm had thrown the ship so far ashore that it was impossible to float her, and that they had to remove everything which could be detached with the utmost possible haste. Nevertheless, I must examine the situation of the wreck, estimate what must have been her condition before the disaster, and decide whether all efforts had been used to get her afloat. I came as an agent of the company in order to give contradictory testimony, if necessary, at the trial. On receipt of my report, the manager would take what measures he might think necessary to protect our interests. The captain of the Jean Guiton knew all about the affair, having been summoned with his boat to assist in the attempts at salvage. He told me the story of the disaster. THE MARIE JOSEPH, DRIVEN BY A FURIOUS GALE, LOST HER BEARINGS COMPLETELY IN THE NIGHT, AND STEERING BY CHANCE OVER A HEAVY FOAMING SEA, A MILK-SOUP SEA, SAID THE CAPTAIN, HAD GONE ASHORE ON THOSE IMMENSE sandbanks WHICH MAKE THE COAST OF THIS COUNTRY LOOK LIKE LIMITLESS SAHARAS WHEN THE TIDE IS LOW. WHILE TALKING, I LOOKED AROUND AND AHEAD. BETWEEN THE OCEAN AND THE LOWERING SKY LAY AN OPEN SPACE WHERE THE EYE COULD SEE INTO THE DISTANCE. "'We were following a coast,' I asked. "'Is that the island of Ray?' "'Yes, sir.' And suddenly the captain stretched his right hand out before us, pointed to something almost imperceptible in the open sea, and said, "'There's your ship, the Marie Joseph.' I was amazed. This black, almost imperceptible speck, which looked to me like a rock, seemed at least three miles from land. I continued. "'But, Captain,' There must be a hundred fathoms of water in that place. He began to laugh. A hundred fathoms, my child. Well, I should say about two. He was from Bordeaux. He continued. It's now nine-thirty, just high tide. Go down along the beach with your hands in your pockets after you've had lunch at the Hotel du Dauphin, and I'll wager that at ten minutes to three, or three o'clock, you'll reach the wreck without wetting your feet and have from an hour and three-quarters to two hours aboard of her, but not more, or you'll be caught. The faster the sea goes out, the faster it comes back. This coast is as flat as a turtle, but start away at ten minutes to five, as I tell you, and at half-past seven, you will again be aboard of the Jean Guiton, which will put you down this same evening "'on the quay at La Rochelle. "'I thanked the captain, "'and I went and sat down in the bow of the steamer "'to get a good look at the little city of San Martín, "'which we were now rapidly approaching. "'It was just like all small seaports which serve as capitals of the barren islands "'scattered along the coast. "'A large fishing village, "'one foot on sea, one foot on shore, "'subsisting on fish and wildfowl, "'vegetables and shellfish, "'radishes and mussels.' THE ISLAND IS VERY LOW AND LITTLE CULTIVATED, YET IT SEEMS TO BE THICKLY POPULATED. HOWEVER, I DID NOT PENETRATE INTO THE INTERIOR. AFTER BREAKFAST I CLIMBED ACROSS A LITTLE PROMONTORY, AND THEN, AS THE TIDE WAS RAPIDLY FALLING, I STARTED OUT ACROSS THE SANDS TOWARD A KIND OF BLACK ROCK WHICH I COULD JUST PERCEIVE ABOVE THE SURFACE OF THE WATER, AND OUT A CONSIDERABLE DISTANCE. I WALKED QUICKLY OVER THE YELLOW plain. "'It was elastic, like flesh, "'and seemed to sweat beneath my tread. "'The sea had been there very lately. "'Now I perceived it at a distance, "'escaping out of sight, "'and I no longer could distinguish the line "'which separated the sands from the ocean. "'I felt as though I were looking "'at a gigantic supernatural work of enchantment. "'The Atlantic had just now been before me. "'Then it had disappeared into the sands.' just as scenery disappears through a trap and I was now walking in the midst of a desert. Only the feeling, the breath of the seawater, remained in me. I perceived the smell of the rack, the smell of the sea, the good strong smell of sea coasts. I walked fast, I was no longer cold. I looked at the stranded wreck, which grew in size as I approached, and came now to resemble an enormous shipwrecked whale. It seemed fairly to rise out of the ground, and on that great, flat, yellow stretch of sand assumed wonderful proportions. After an hour's walk, I at last reached it. It lay upon its side, ruined and shattered, the broken bones showing as though it were an animal, its bones of tarred wood pierced with great bolts. The sand had already invaded it, entering it by all the crannies. And held it and refused to let it go. It seemed to have taken root in it. The bow had entered deep into this soft, treacherous beach, while the stern, high in the air, seemed to cast at heaven, like a cry of despairing appeal, the two white words on the black planking Marie Joseph. I climbed upon this carcass of a ship by the lowest side, then, having reached the deck, I went below the daylight which entered by the stove in hatches and the cracks in the sides showed me dimly long dark cavities full of demolished woodwork they contained nothing but sand which served as footsoil in this cavern of planks i began to take some notes about the condition of the ship i was seated on a broken empty cask writing by the light of a great crack through which i could perceive the boundless stretch of the strand A strange shivering of cold and loneliness ran over my skin from time to time, and I would often stop writing for a moment to listen to the mysterious noises in the derelict. The noise of crabs scratching the planking with their crooked claws. The noise of a thousand little creatures of the sea already crawling over this dead body, or else boring into the wood. Suddenly, very near me, I heard human voices. I started as though I would seen a ghost FOR A SECOND I REALLY THOUGHT I WAS ABOUT TO SEE DROWNED MEN RISE FROM THE SINISTER DEPTHS OF THE HOLD, WHO WOULD TELL ME ABOUT THEIR DEATH. AT ANY RATE, IT DID NOT TAKE ME LONG TO SWING MYSELF ON DECK. THERE, STANDING BY THE BOWS, WAS A TALL ENGLISHMAN WITH THREE YOUNG MISSES. CERTAINLY THEY WERE A GOOD DEAL MORE FRIGHTENED AT SEEING THIS SUDDEN APPARITION ON THE ABANDONED THREE MASTER THAN I WAS AT SEEING THEM. THE YOUNGEST GIRL TURNED AND RAN. The two others threw their arms around their father. As for him, he opened his mouth. That was the only sign of emotion which he showed. Then, after several seconds, he spoke. Monsieur, are you owner of this ship? I am. May I go over it? You may. Then he uttered a long sentence in English, in which I only distinguished the word gracious repeated several times. As he was looking for a place to climb up, I showed him the easiest way, and gave him a hand. He climbed up. Then we helped up the three girls, who had now quite recovered their composure. They were charming, especially the oldest, a blonde of eighteen, fresh as a flower, and very dainty and pretty. Ah, yes, the pretty English women have indeed the look of tender sea-fruit. One would have said of this one, she had just risen out of the sands, and that her hair had kept their tint. They all, with their exquisite freshness, make you think of the delicate colors of pink seashells, and of shining pearls hidden in the unknown depths of the ocean. She spoke French a little better than her father, and acted as interpreter. I had to tell all about the shipwreck, and I romanced as though I had been present at the catastrophe then the whole family descended into the interior of the wreck. As soon as they had penetrated into this somber, dimly lit cavity, they uttered cries of astonishment and admiration. Suddenly the father and his three daughters were holding sketchbooks in their hands, which they had doubtless carried hidden somewhere in their heavy, weatherproof clothes, and were all beginning at once to make pencil sketches of this melancholy and weird place. We'll return to our story And now we return to The Wreck by Guy de Maupassant. They had seated themselves side by side on a projecting beam, and the four sketchbooks on the eight knees were being rapidly covered with little black lines which were intended to represent the half opened hulk of the Marie Joseph. I continued to inspect the skeleton of the ship, and the oldest girl talked to me while she worked. They were simple, honest hearts of that class of continuous travelers with which England covers the globe. The father was long and thin, with a red face framed in white whiskers, and looking like a living sandwich, a piece of ham carved like a face between two wads of hair. The daughters, who had long legs like young storks, were also thin, except the oldest. All three were pretty, especially the tallest. She had such a droll way of speaking, of laughing, of understanding and of not understanding. Of raising her eyes to ask a question. Eyes blue as the deep ocean. Of stopping or drawing a moment to make a guess at what she meant. Of returning once more to work. Of saying yes or no. That I could have listened and looked indefinitely. Suddenly she murmured. I hear a little sound on this boat. I listened. I listened and I immediately distinguished a low, steady, curious sound. I rose and looked out of the crack and gave a scream. The sea had come up to us. It would soon surround us. We were on deck in an instant. It was too late. The water circled us about and was running toward the coast at tremendous speed. No, it didn't run. It glided, crept, spread like an immense limitless blot. The water was barely a few centimeters deep, but the rising flood had gone so far that we no longer saw the vanishing line of the imperceptible tide. The Englishman wanted to jump. I held him back. Flight was impossible because of the deep places which we had been obliged to go round on our way out and into which we should fall on our return. There was a minute of horrible anguish in our hearts. Then the little English girl began to smile and murmured, "'It is we who are shipwrecked.' I tried to laugh, but fear held me, a fear which was cowardly and horrid and base and treacherous, like the tide. All the danger which we ran appeared to me at once. I wanted to shriek, help. But to whom? The two younger girls were clinging to their father, who looked in consternation at the measureless sea which hedged us round about. The night fell as swiftly as the ocean rose, a lowering, wet, icy night. I said, there's nothing to do but stay on the ship. The Englishman answered, yes, oh yes. And we waited there a quarter of an hour, half an hour. Indeed, I don't know how long watching that creeping water going deeper as it swirled round us as though it were playing on the beach which it had regained. One of the young girls was cold and we went below to shelter ourselves from the light but freezing wind that made our skins tingle. I leaned over the hatchway. The ship was full of water so we had to cower against the stern planking which shielded us a little darkness was now coming on, and we remained huddled together. I felt the shoulder of the little English girl trembling against mine, her teeth chattering from time to time. But I also felt the gentle warmth of her body through her ulster, and that warmth was as delicious to me as a kiss. We no longer spoke, we sat, motionless, mute, cowering down like animals in a ditch when a hurricane is raging, and, nevertheless, despite the night, despite the terrible and increasing danger. I began to feel happy that I was there, glad of the cold and the peril, glad of the long hours of darkness and anguish that I must pass on this plank, so near this dainty, pretty girl. I asked myself, why this strange sensation of well-being and of joy? Why? Does one know? Because she was there? Who? She? A little unknown English girl? I did not love her. I did not even know her. And for all that, I was touched and conquered. I wanted to save her. To sacrifice myself for her. To commit a thousand follies. Strange thing. How does it happen that the presence of a woman overwhelms us so? Is it the power of her grace which enfolds us? Is it the seduction of her beauty and youth, which intoxicates one like wine? Is it not rather the touch of love, of love the mysterious, who seeks constantly to unite two beings, who tries his strength the instant he has put a man and a woman face to face? The silence of the darkness became terrible, the stillness of the sky dreadful, because we could hear vaguely about us a slight continuous sound, the sound of the rising tide and the monotonous splashing of the water against the ship. Suddenly I heard the sound of sobs. The youngest of the girls was crying. Her father tried to console her and they began to talk in their own tongue, which I did not understand. I guessed that he was reassuring her and that she was still afraid. I asked my neighbor, "'You are not too cold, are you, mademoiselle?' "'Oh, yes, I am very cold,' she answered. "'I offered to give her my cloak, but she refused it. "'But I had taken it off, and I covered her with it against her will. "'In the short struggle her hand-touched mine, "'it made a delicious thrill run through my body. "'For some minutes the air had been growing brisker, "'the dashing of the water stronger against the flanks of the ship. "'I raised myself.' A great gust of wind blew in my face. The wind was rising. The Englishman perceived this at the same time that I did and said simply, This is bad for us. This, of course it was bad. It was certain death if any breakers, however feeble, should attack and shake the wreck, which was already so shattered and disconnected that the first big sea would carry it off so our anguish increased momentarily as the squalls grew stronger and stronger. Now the sea broke a little, and I saw in the darkness white lines appearing and disappearing, lines of foam, while each wave struck the Marie Joseph and shook her with a short quiver which went to our hearts. The English girl was trembling. I felt her shiver against me, and I had a wild desire to take her in my arms. Down there, Before and behind us, to the left and right, lighthouses were shining along the shore. Lighthouses white, yellow, and red, revolving like the enormous eyes of giants who were watching us, waiting eagerly for us to disappear. One of them in especial irritated me. It went out every thirty seconds, and it lit up again immediately. It was indeed an eye, that one with its lid incessantly lowered over its fiery glance. From time to time the Englishman struck a match to see the hour. Then he put his watch back in his pocket. Suddenly he said to me, over the heads of his daughters, with tremendous gravity, "'I wish you a happy New Year, monsieur.' It was midnight. I held out my hand, which he pressed. Then he said something in English, and suddenly he and his daughters began to sing, God Save the Queen, which rose through the black and silent air and vanished into space. At first I felt the desire to laugh, then I was seized by a powerful, strange emotion. It was something sinister and superb, this chant of the shipwrecked, the condemned, something like a prayer, and also like something grander, Something comparable to the ancient Ave Caesar Moratori te Salutant. When they had finished, I asked my neighbor to sing a ballad alone, anything she liked, to make us forget our terrors. She consented, and immediately her clear young voice rang out into the night. She sang something which was doubtless sad, because the notes were long drawn out and hovered like wounded birds above the waves. The sea was rising now, and beating upon our wreck. As for me, I thought only of that voice, and I thought also of the sirens. If a ship had passed near by us, what would the sailors have said? My troubled spirit lost itself in the dream—a siren! Was she not really a siren, this daughter of the sea, who have kept me on this worm-eaten ship? and who was soon about to go down with me deep into the waters. But suddenly we were all five rolling on the deck because the Marie Joseph had sunk on her right side. The English girl had fallen upon me and before I knew what I was doing, thinking that my last moment was come, I had caught her in my arms and kissed her cheek, her temple, and her hair. The ship did not move again and we, we also, remained motionless. The father said, Kate. The one whom I was holding answered, Yes, and made a movement to free herself. And at that moment, I should have wished the ship to split in two and let me fall with her into the sea. The Englishman continued, A little rocking, it's nothing. I have my three daughters safe. I rose slowly, and suddenly I made out a light on the sea quite close to us. I shouted, They answered. It was a boat sent out in search of us by the hotel-keeper, who had guessed at our imprudence. We were saved. I was in despair. They picked us up off our raft, and they brought us back to San Martín. The Englishman began to rub his head and murmur, A good supper! A good supper! We did sup. I was not happy. I regretted the Marie-Joseph. We had to separate the next day after much handshaking and many promises to write. They departed for burets. I wanted to follow them. I was hard hit. I wanted to ask this little girl to marry me. If we had passed eight days together, I should have done so. How weak and incomprehensible a man sometimes is. Two years passed without my hearing a word from them. "'Then I received a letter from New York. "'She was married and wrote to tell me. "'And since then, we write to each other every year on New Year's Day. "'She tells me about her life, talks of her children, her sisters, "'never of her husband. "'Why? "'Ah, why? "'And as for me, I only talk of the Marie Joseph. "'That was perhaps the only woman I've ever loved.' No, that I ever should have loved. Ah, well, who can tell? Circumstances rule one. And then, and then, all passes. She must be old now. I should not know her. Ah, she of the bygone time. She of the wreck. What a creature! Divine! She writes me her hair is white, That caused me terrible pain. Ah, her yellow hair. No, my English girl exists no longer. How sad it all is. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. We would appreciate that very much. Until next week, Wednesday night at 8 p.m., everyone, stay safe.